Welcome to the AD Aesthete, hosted by me, Mitch Owens, AD's Decorative Arts Editor. Philip Hewitt Jabour is a connoisseur, a scholar, an art advisor, and a founder of Masterpiece London, the glamorous annual British Collectors' Fair, now in its 10th year. He's passionate about cross-collecting, the age-old philosophy of appreciating a multitude of time periods and genres, and he has a lot to say about how handling beautiful objects is as important as looking at them. Philip, I know one of the things that you've talked about a great deal since I met you in 2001 when you came to New York and gave an extraordinary talk about William Beckford, the great English collector, is, is cross-collecting. And I know that that's been a huge leitmotif at Masterpiece London, the fair that you had, and was wondering if we could talk a bit about the philosophy of cross-collecting and where it began and why it ended and why it's back. Absolutely, Mitch. Thank you for that. And I think cross-collecting to me is, is, is without question the obvious and natural way you should collect. I mean, nobody wants to live in surroundings um, which is entirely populated with um, classical art or contemporary art or 18th century English furniture and so on. And traditionally, the great collectors have, have always collected in a multidisciplinary way. If you look at the great Medici collections, the great 18th century collections, I think the 19th century, which then sort of began to look closely at collecting in a very specialised way might have sort of um, diverted people from collecting across across disciplines. It's something I feel really important. I think it's important and the richness and uh, great life enhancement you get by mixing works of art very carefully together I think is absolutely paramount. And with Masterpiece, this is something we really wanted to demonstrate to not only our established collectors amongst our visitors, but the great number of potential new collectors who come to the fair who are not so familiar with this world. So to put together um, an astonishing group of works of art drawn from all over the world in all periods and mixed incredibly carefully, I think has really served to, to um, stimulate a whole new interest in, in mixing very carefully beautiful works of art together. Now, was that always the philosophy of Masterpiece back when you were developing the fair? Um, it, it, it really was. I mean, it was a question of get, making people looking outside of their comfort zones, as it were. And we sort of coined the phrase cross-collecting, which has um, now, I'm pleased to say, rather become in more current and more <laughs> wide use. And the way we do it at Masterpiece is not only by having this wide range of works of art there, but how we carefully mix our exhibitors up within the body of the fair. I know once, a couple of years ago, when I was at Masterpiece, I was hugely impressed you were re calibrating the floor plan and I felt like I had learned something so new and you had said something along the lines of if guest at Masterpiece was largely interested in say contemporary art and looking in one particular dealer's booth you wanted them to be able to turn around and leave the booth and be confronted by something from the 19th century or the 18th century across the booth across the way and perhaps wonder what is that? Or 
a, a moment of, of uh, recalibration for them. Absolutely. I think that's terribly important, and I think that's part of the excitement and the allure of, of, of Masterpiece. I think you know, one has to remember, particularly with people who are less familiar with this world, you can no longer uh, serendipitously come across works of art in ground floor galleries and, 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 and shops, as it were. When I first started in this business, you could walk down Bond Street or the Faubourg Saint-Honoré, and every single shop had works of art in it, whether it was contemporary art, impressionist pictures, jewellery, 18th century furniture, mm-hmm. and so on. And so you were sort of aware, and this, this, this possibility has been removed. And so by attracting our visitors to the fair, we're able to open this great treasure chest, really. And um, we have this wonderful magic key of being able to introduce people who are both familiar with, with this world, but particularly the newer potential power and collector, which is something I'm particularly, I'm particularly interested in myself. And we have been seeing, I think, because of this approach, a new group of people getting involved, looking and learning, which first of all is, is the most important thing, but also beginning to buy. You had told me about a group of school children who had come into Masterpiece and they were being allowed to put on armored helmets and <laughs> such to really take them not only sort of into the past, but to understand that these things are in many ways meant to be held, meant to be used, meant to be enjoyed. And I know that you've always discussed that touch and being able to pick up something is a huge component of the beginning of an education, whether it's an antique or a contemporary piece. Uh, it, it's absolutely vitally important, and I think in, in a world that, that has become increasingly at a remove through the use of modern technology and so on, which has tremendously valuable parts to play, but there is absolutely nothing like handling a work of art. You have no understanding unless you get the weight of a glass or the softness, the, the temperature of the material you're holding. Mm. And it's the, the, it an absolutely vital way of doing it. And um, I remember, and I may have told you this story before, but my grandfather was a, a serious collector. And he was rather, 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 for me as a small boy, rather a scary man. And he would, in an early evening, allow me to look at his collection. And he would bring out a piece of porcelain, a piece of Chinese porcelain from a cabinet and explain it all about it to me, allow me to handle it and touch it. And really interestingly, he changed as a character completely. I mean, this slightly frightening patriarch mm-hmm. um, of our family then sort of melted and became this incredibly enthusiastic, knowledgeable, passionate collector. And I think it was really from him that I actually got my initial interest in this world by actually sitting down as a, as a nine-year-old, ten-year-old mm-hmm. with this man being taught how to look at some of these incredibly rare um, Chinese porcelains that he collected. What, what do you think sparked his interest in, in Chinese porcelain in particular? Do you know, I, it's really interesting, I don't know. I mean, it, it's not something I ever spoke to him about. His brother, curious enough, was, was also a really serious collector. He collected 17th century English silver, particularly chinoiserie, mm-hmm. um, um, in Boston engraved silver. And so whether that was a sort of family tray, I don't know. But how he started, I, I don't know. He, he collected in other fields as well, but Chinese Boston was his major passion. Was your... Granduncle similar in the sense of talking with you about silver and what he was collecting and allowing you to handle it? Um, one was certainly allowed to handle it. He didn't talk about it so much, but, I mean, silver being silver, it was in use the whole time, which mm. is something, again, that I'm really, really concerned that people understand, is that the, the great majority of these works of art were made to be used, and they were made to be et off or sat on or wine poured out of or decanters put right. in and so on. And I think... 
again, one of the other things that, that you know, I, I, I find with masterpiece that's such a, a useful tool is to really demonstrate to people that uh, there's no need to be afraid of these things and uh, um, how one approaches them is, is very straightforward and really to take the mystique away. And I think that's part of the part of the joy of this fair is is, is that whilst underpinned by immense seriousness, we have you know, the scholarly passion of our exhibitors, but it's put together in a way that is very um, I hate to use the word approachable, but it is. But it's fun and it's welcoming. And I think to take the mystique away from approaching and looking at works of art is is a really important factor in bringing on a new generation of collectors. Well, no, I, I very much agree with you. I think you know when I was quite young, I grew up in a family that didn't collect any antiques of any great importance, mm. but I remember always going to dealers or fairs or et cetera with my mother in particular, and the dealers encouraging you at eight, nine, ten, mm. handing yeah. you something, wanting to talk with you it about what it was, where it came from, what it had been used yeah. for, what it would still be used for. I love your pointing out that these were things that were meant to be sat upon and dined with and held on a on a daily basis. Well, al- al- almost almost everything was. I mean, religious art you prayed in front of and, and so on. I mean, everything was more or less part of daily life. Uh, we've lost this out of not so much out of a sense of reverence, but a sense of, I think, a lack of knowledge. And also, I think, because people live slightly differently, I think you have to also present these works of art differently that rings true for, 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 um, for a modern audience, a newer, younger collector. And I think there are lots of ways of doing this, and it's something we talk to our exhibitors about a great deal. It's something I think about myself a lot. And it is, you know, it, in, in a way, it's quite simple. It's really about telling stories and understanding, um, understanding the works of art and through their manufacture, how they're made, how rare the materials are, whether they were scarce, where they came from, mm-hmm. how they travel, which countries they came from, were they easy to use, were they hard to carve. It's a seduction. Um, it, it really is. And once you really understand how something is made, I think that that to me is is, is how you really lure in newly interested people. And I think it also, once you understand how it's made and what the materials are, in a strange way, it reduces the reverence but heightens the appreciation, if that makes sense. Sense. Ab- absolutely. You know, if you if you know your mahogany, you know, it comes from the West Indies and you know, actually earlier than most people think in the 1730s, and how incredibly expensive it was and exotic and durable. I mean, we see mahogany all over the place now, mm-hmm. but you know, you have to sort of think about things in context, and it becomes enormously seductive. And you know, it's the beginning of telling the stories, and and you can tell these stories in very very many ways, and. I mean, the sort of the threads of stories that I like to tell is is is, is really linking, you know, the ancient past to the contemporary. Going through, I mean, you can go through regionally, you can go through through materials, you can go through styles, and I think once you make those links, you can then begin to open up a world to somebody who may only be interested in a certain area of contemporary design mm. or is only interested in a particular type of medieval carving or whatever. But you can make all these really cogent threads through, um, which makes sense and makes for a really um, engaging and, and, and thought-provoking story. Mm. Well, also a, a richer, deeper, more interesting collection. Yes. I wonder, in your work when you were working with Sotheby's early on in your career, and uh, working as, as an art advisor and, and with Masterpiece, is the word collecting or collector a frightening term? 
I, I, I think for I th- people. Yes, I think it is. I think it's it, it, it's you know when people come and say, "Oh, do you collect? Are you a collector?" And that's slightly I find that slightly odd and to way slightly embarrassing because I mean I think it's also old fashioned. And I think it's something, again, that I know you talk about a lot is also the use of the word antiques. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, we are trying to represent this wonderful world that we inhabit to a newer audience, um, a, a possibly an, an audience that's currently less well-informed but really keen to learn. And we have to present things in a new way. And so talking about antiques to me doesn't ring true, nor does you know, the, the word collector ring true. And, and equally, one seeing changes, you know, th- there's much less talk now about um, classical antiquities. It tends to be referred to as ancient art. Mm-hmm. Old master paintings are now referred to as master paintings. And these are very sort of minute changes, but actually I do think they help bring this traditional world up to date and sort of focus for a, for a modern audience. And I think there, this is just, I think, one of the many ways that one can try I'm to help that open up. I'm glad you said that, because a lot of the argument that I've heard from some dealers and, and some collectors as well, or appreciators of the beautiful, is that it almost seems as if the field, to a degree, is sort of bending over backwards to avoid being thought old, or to be avoid being thought that they sell old things. I mean, an antique is an antique, how do you describe it in a way that explains it but doesn't make it seem fusty because they're they're not because so much of what we look at was was modern in its day in technology in style and design and material absolutely every, every, everything was new in its day and, and 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 the technology aspect of it whether it's in in in, in classical rome or yesterday is, is enormously important i think you i mean i think you have to sort of really try and take things out of context somehow and and if you if you remove an 18th century serve teacup and saucer from that sort of collector's bracket as it were and you turn it into a piece of sculpture you demonstrate when you look at it really closely the the intensity and richness of, of the gilding and you have just to look at things differently and i think it is showing people how to look is an incredibly important of all of all of our lives and people don't know how to look i mean a lot of one's professional friends don't actually know how to look at an object and it's not something that is taught and so I think to come to an art fair, to go to a gallery, to go to a dealer, to go to an auction house, and to look at objects with somebody who really, really knows about objects mm-hmm. is, is the true key to understanding and making things that, be they, be they modern or traditional, more appealing to the contemporary eye. And I know one of the things that you've, you've done at Masterpiece is encourage dealers from different fields or different styles to share booths, to, to bring their works together in a complementary way that, that one period enhances the other and vice versa. I think, I think that's enormously important. I think, I think a lot of people find it very difficult to imagine, firstly, I mean, how things might look at home, as it were. Mm-hmm. And so I think the you know, display of works of art is of, is of crucial importance at uh, helping people to, to understand how to live with, uh, to live with them. But at Masterpiece, we've been encouraging a number of our exhibitors to, to share stands in a sort of intellectually engaged way where mixing disciplines really enhances one with the other. And uh, we have one gallery, for example, who, who shows a fantastic 20th century furniture, and they've been mixing their furniture with really superb classical antiquities. Mm-hmm. 
it may seem to us a fairly sort of obvious thing to do, but it's not much done. But when it's done with tremendous style and taste, um, an unfashionable word which I like to use a lot, <laughs> as well as connoisseurship, um, it really brings both things alive. And I find myself going on the stand. I, I love classical antiquities, I mean, I, I, but I was drawn on this stand to look at this, I mean, tremendous furniture, much of which was by Nakashima, which I never really looked at closely before. Uh, I, oh, myself, I remember that installation. Yes, it was, Very it was fantastic. But I got drawn into really looking at this furniture, which I'd seen before, but I hadn't really looked at. But interestingly enough, um, and, and the, the two dealers, had a, they did very well. And they sold most of their stand to two private collectors who were not specialists in either of those areas, who just thought this was the most ravishing, stimulating way to mix works of art together. And I mean, I looked at it from uh, also from a which I presume a lot of uh, shoppers at, at fairs do. You know, like you said earlier, how it will look at home. That particular pairing of, of disciplines, it made you really understand. I I could have bought the entire yeah. booth Absolutely. and installed it in a living room, well, not Shima furniture and classical sculpture. Basically, two amazing. basically two people did. Oh, completely, <laughs> com, com, completely out of their fields. And I hear that a lot of the fair. I mean, it happened again last year with with one dealer who, who who sold a whole sort of installation. It rather reminds me of David Hicks, who I used to work with a very mm. long time of time ago when I was at Sotheby's, of of, of 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 putting together an installation, as it were, a group of works of art that are cohesive and surpass each other because of their combination. And I think also, I think it's, uh, I think we're thinking of that and thinking of David Hicks. I think it's also, I mean, the, the, the one of the great ways of getting people truly involved, and this is, this is a sort of historical way of getting people involved in, in becoming collectors, is the incredibly important role, which is viewed differently, uh, perhaps in different parts of the world, that the decorator or the designer plays. Mm -hmm. And... I was just been reading the new book on Joseph Devine. Oh, um, it's good. Which, which is book. which is fantastic, and it just reminded me that in fact the great art dealers, particularly in reference with early 20th century sort of American collections, all the great American collections really, they started to inspire their clients' interest in collecting by actually decorating, and that was the first step. The first step wasn't let's buy. English 18th century portraits or mm. French 18th century furniture. The first step was, let's make a fantastic setting in a wonderful new building for you. And then having got to that stage, that needs to be populated, furnished as it were. And then out of that, you know, real collecting starts. And I found in my modest way as an art advisor, most of my clients originally, most artists, they had empty apartments, empty houses, they need to furnish them because you need mm. something to sit on and eat off and so on. And every single one of them, with one exception, has subsequently found an area in which they have become a collector, to use a word we've been discussing mm -hmm. before, which we might need to find another. <laughs> well, to, 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 to go back to that, you mentioned the words taste and connoisseur, connoisseurship. Can we talk a bit about the word taste? Because it, it is, for a lot of people, a loaded term, if not a frightening one, as if one doesn't come up to scratch. Um, I, I, I think I think I think it's an incredibly important word, and a word I was very much brought up on. And I think it can be used pejoratively and otherwise. Mm -hmm. And it's quite interesting. Going back to my family, when my my grandfather was a, was a collector, uh, he had a, a beautiful house, and it was very nicely put together. 
However, his son, who had beautiful things, but I would not have called a collector, had the most consummate taste in both dress and interiors and so on. And the interiors of his house, which were furnished and, and, and decorated by, and, uh, by him and with him by Tom Parr, who was a great friend oh, of Tom, Co- Co- Colfax and Fowler, Fowler um, in, in the early days, they were, they were good, good friends. And that, to me, was the epitome of great taste the combination of disparate, wonderful, beautiful, eccentric works of art, not necessarily of great value or great importance, mm-hmm. put together with tremendous style and panache. And you can apply that to dress, you can apply that to cooking. I mean, right. it, it's, it goes across the board. And I think it's a word that really needs to be brought back into use. It's very, I find it a very useful word. But it has suffered. But again, your uncle was brought up in rooms of, of great beauty with a father who collected great porcelains, etc. So obviously he, he seems to have been able to absorb his surroundings and then take it a step further in maybe a more stylish way. Um, absolutely. And I think also I think that was a sort of a, a moment which is different today and I think one of the reasons also why the, the sort of focus on the traditional works of art is, is slightly less and all of that's changing, is that you know, 20, 30 years ago and so on, there were a smaller number of designers, decorators, there were a small number of people who bought works of art mm-hmm. and who were interested in, in, in um, uh, putting together beautiful interiors. And they were also a group of people who were actually more connected socially. And so there was peer pressure. Mm-hmm and an understanding and knowledge of what you were doing and what your friend was doing and somebody's cousin was doing and so on and so forth. Nowadays, with this much uh, more expanded world in which we live, there is no, I think it's very much more difficult to set taste than it used to be. There are numerous designers and decorators who are superb at what they do, but it's spread across a broader range of clients, Mm -hmm. people who don't mix socially, people who don't allow their houses to be published and seen and so on. So I think it's become more isolated. And I think, you know, certainly in the 70s and the 80s, when everything was much more open and much more discussed and much more visible, it was easier to lead taste and to follow taste. Mm-hmm. And I think that has gone, and I actually think that is one of the reasons why the more traditional fields of collecting have diminished in importance in many people's eyes, and the role of contemporary has, has risen, because that is so much more of a, a visible experience mm-hmm. for, for, for buyers. But I do think that's changing. I think that's coming back, and I think that's a, a, a role that I hope, uh, you know, in a modest way, that we can play at Masterpiece is to is to really demonstrate this great breadth and mix and the, you know, the, the, the richness and the fulfilment you get by doing so. Right. And, you know, and it, it, it's as you know. I mean, I, I have I have two great heroes in my life. I mean, dead heroes, as it were. <laughs> <laughs> Both of whom I've done exhibitions on: William Beckford and Thomas Hope. And to me. They, they, one of the reasons why I'm interested in both, well, there are many reasons why I'm interested in both of those late 18th, early 19th century, newly wealthy collectors, buyers, um, English-based, but not entirely English, was that they were really doing what I think the modern buyer, I hesitate to use the word collector, should mm-hmm. be doing. They understood that, you know, to inhabit a world of richness, that a combination of extraordinary 
old works of art combined with contemporary works of art, and in their particular individual cases, works of art that they had had a hand in designing themselves, mm. was you know, the most exciting way forward. And I'm a great believer of, of, of doing that. And I, I think the, you know, the, the, the current, the contemporary buyer should be buying new things, but I really do think they should be commissioning things. And in my view, if you're going to buy contemporary art, if you're not involved in the commissioning process, I don't really quite see the point of it. Um, that to me is an absolutely crucial part of being really? in the, I, I really do. I mean, if, if I, I have very little contemporary art at home, but not that I don't like contemporary art, I do. I mean, I'm really interested and passionately interested in it. But for me, the process of being involved in the commissioning is what you can't do that with, with anything else. You can't do that with Chippendale. He died For 250 years ago. Uh, but you get the, the, the process of understanding how the artist is working is, is tremendously important. And this is a dual feedback without question. And I think, I think that's, a, to me, a really crucial element of being involved in the, um, in the contemporary world. So in other words, I, I'm also hugely, again, you were talking about Beckford and Hope. You know, I'm always very interested in that particular group of people at that time who were amateurs in the best sense Absolutely. of the word. They were in pursuit of beauty, wherever it came from. And I find that a really interesting way because I know you've, you've said that things are either good or they're bad or they're great or they're not, but at the end of the day, is it beautiful? That's sort of what matters and how it's put together. Beauty is, is, is to me, is of essential importance. If an object is not beautiful, and you find beauty in everything you look at in the world. Um, you know, it could be a leaf lying in the in 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 in, in the gutter downstairs. It can be an object of great beauty. Yeah. I think again, it's training one's eye at how to look at things and taking it's taking time to look at things. People glance at best so very often. And interesting enough, I, I was in Indianapolis last, uh, earlier on this week, and I was looking at a, a newly installed museum display, and there were no labels. And I thought, wow, that's incredibly interesting. And there was a checklist somewhere else in the room. But by having no labels, it actually made you look at the objects. And then having looked at the objects, you could then go and get the information and, and, and find out more about them. And I think we look at everything insufficiently. We don't spend time looking at works of art. And I think people need to pause and to reflect and to really, really understand how to use their, use their eyes. And that, again, is, 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 is a learning curve. I mean, you have to be taught how to look. So that would be a piece of advice you would give, obviously, to someone young starting out not under even somebody who's probably maybe been a collector for a while. Absolutely. You have spent time, really use your eyes, look at every detail. You, As we've said before, you have to hold things, you have to touch things, you have to feel the heft of them in your hands and so on. It's absolute, absolutely vital. And the more you look, the more you learn and the more inquisitive you become. Do you find that dealers feel that they're knowledge is is being used in a greater positive way now than it was in the past or uh, absolutely yeah, i really do i th i think i think you know the, the, the current generation of dealers are passionate knowledgeable 
incredibly keen to share that knowledge with everybody and mm. I mean that's that that is really important and certainly I find um, you, you mentioned you mentioned, um, school children and masterpiece and I mean um, one year one of one, one, one young um, a gentleman came up to me and, 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 and said, well, I had an idea. I went onto the stand and they talked to me. They explained about this object to me and it's so exciting and I've learned about this and I've learned about that. And he said, you know, I obviously wasn't going to buy anything, but wow, they spent 10 minutes talking about this object. And that's incredible because this person now will have been given a whole new sort of way of thinking about uh, the excitement of this particular type of object. What do you think got object. him over that hurdle? Because I do find... People are very often afraid to walk into a booth, afraid to ask a question, afraid to ask when anything costs, whether they can afford it or not. Well, I, I think right now, I, I think one of the great aims of our fair is to remove all these barriers. Everything should be approachable. And we have a, a, a roster of astonishingly um, clever exhibitors whose prime joy in life is to explain to people and bring their works of art about which they're so knowledgeable to life to others who may not have such um, knowledge and I think everybody realizes that it's important to start learning early and you know mm. I mean the earlier you look at things in whatever shape or form it gives you, you know, the, the time and the, the depth of interest to get really involved and I think you know, I think the, 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 the way of sort of enticing enticing people to look at things, it, it is presentation, it is lighting. From our fair perspective, it's the labelling, it's the vetting process, it's the absolutely underlying knowledge that everything has been scrutinised by our vetting committees so that what is on the label accurately reflects mm -hmm. the object. Tell me about uh, the vetting committee. How, what is the process? We, we have a, a really fascinating, very busy, long day before the fair opens, and the exhibitors are asked not to be on site. And we have about 175 individuals drawn from all areas of the art world, be they museum curators, people drawn from academia, um, other dealers, auctioneers. And we put those together in, in our case, about 27 different teams. And they look at every work of art uh, in the fair and everything in the fair is for sale. So every single object gets scrutinized. And if things, if there are questions about things, if people are unsure that the date is correct or perhaps the place of origin or whatever, um, conversations take place and those adjustments are made so mm -hmm. that when our visitors come to the fair that they can be absolutely sure that what, what is on the, on the label accurately reflects the, the object. One of the things I'm really keen on and, and um, beginning to win the battle with is to include prices on the labels because um, I think one of the things that also is really important for people to understand when they're getting newly involved in this world that um, so many works of art are incredibly inexpensive. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, this is part of the taking away the fear and the lack of approachability of works of art um, is if one can demonstrate to people that you know, something is a matter of a few thousand dollars or whatever it is, it draws people in and people are afraid to ask quite often. And, and um, I find that myself sometimes. And so you know, this is an indication at least uh, as to what something might be might be priced out or worse. I mean, that, that, that I think is really helpful and without question it encourages sales. But um, also I think just, you know, it's it, part it, of the people, knowledge, part of the learning curve. It's part it. of the learning curve. It's like if you see a great price, 
you would like the dealer to explain it to you why it's that price i mean why yes. what what makes this worth more than that even though it's it, it may not be it may be an academic question yeah. or not but one wants to know and yeah. if they're all everything's on public display you want things to be sold you would like to know why yeah i, I, cost I, what they do. I, I, I think it's really important and and there's particularly uh, I think it's even more important, curious in a way, now that everything is so readily accessible on the internet and you know, if you're so minded um, and if something has been sold publicly, you, know, you can find out when and where it came from. I have pulled out my iPhone many a time I'm in sure. the antiques fair looking <laughs> up where did that sell yes. before. The current price doesn't bother me so much as I want to know why it sold at that, what it sold before that. Um, it's just that massing of knowledge it's, it's and part, understanding. It's, it is part of the history of the piece. Uh, and also, you, know, you, you will very often find, you know, that in between something being sold and being resold, I mean, you know, an object's been cleaned. There's new new information about it. There's new research, and and I think that all these elements should be really open and available, and and people should freely talk about these things, mm -hmm. and and um, and that 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 really is happening, and I think it's it's an important important element, you know, particularly to encourage the. The, the, the newer buyer to, to mm. um, become involved. Speaking of newer buyers, I know that just a few months ago you had the Masterpiece Pavilion in um, Hong Kong. We did, which was and very exciting. How, how was that? It was extremely exciting. We took for our first, our first venture in Hong Kong, we collaborated with Fine Art Asia, with whom we've worked in the past, and we have great respect for Fine Art Asia. They are a sort of, um, have a mirror philosophy, a mirror ethos to us, and being a, a multidisciplinary affair, and are rather more based in with Asian antiques and works of art. And we took a large stand, which I created out of about 35, 40 objects, pictures, um, antiquities, silver, uh, ceramics, jewelry, and so on, that we had um, selected from a number of our masterpiece exhibitors. And we arranged this in a display to really reflect the ethos of the fair in London, to show to almost completely brand new audience, not only what we do in London, but what we are um, wishing to bring to Hong Kong, to Asia, in a more expanded version in the future of our ethos of cross-collecting. And it went down extraordinarily well. People were excited, captivated, stimulated by seeing works of art presented in this way in a way completely new to them, mm -hmm. but not only in the presentation, also many of the works of art themselves were completely new. So the, the way we think we can make this work goes back to what we were talking earlier. Mm -hmm. It is about telling stories. And, you know, I found myself in some curious way able to tell stories linking second century Roman marble busts to Cezanne's, to Bridget Riley's fire, Grand Tour, Chalcedony mm -hmm. and Talios. I'm not quite sure how, but one was able to make these rather curious stories. But it gives somebody, it gives, it gives a possibility of people to grasp these links and to then understand how actually looking at you know, the way Bridget Riley paints her wonderful coloured 
striped canvas, as it were, actually rather reflect uh, this particular Cezanne we had. And, right. and it was really intriguing. And also makes one think oneself, which is also important and exciting well, and fun. I collection, which, oh. I, which I've, I've never had the pleasure of visiting your house on well, Jersey. Well, you must. But I, I hope to go there someday soon. But I know that we featured it, uh, I believe, earlier this year. Uh, um, you Arch- did. Was it on com? And you have this these beautiful white cubes of rooms full of these very beautiful disparate objects, everything from uh, Louis the Sixteenth uh, object, Sixteenth object owned by Daisy Fellows, mm-hmm. to an uh, ancient mm-hmm. piece of car porphyry, <laughs> and I, I I love very much how the ethos of masterpiece is how you live yourself. Well, I think that's tremendously important because I think um, you know one's one, one's enormously lucky that one is engulfed in this world and and uh, there are no sort of splits or no sort of um, uh, blinds, as it were, between mm. all the different areas of, of what one does. And I've been very fortunate at home in, in that um, um, I have a, a great friend who's a designer called Pierre Vevalbaum, who, whom I respect enormously, who actually himself is a serious collector, if one is going to use that phrase, <laughs> <laughs> and, and understands my taste, but also understands that I think the role, of a, the role of a designer, a role of a decorator for somebody who owns and is interested in works of art is to provide a setting primarily to enhance and show off their works of art to their advantage. And I think that's something that's really important, again, a really important rule of thumb about how you approach your own interiors. And so my white cubes that you refer to are indeed white cubes that when you come, and it doesn't translate really by in, in photographs, they are indeed all white cubes, but they are all subtly extremely different, both in technique and color mm-hmm. of material. And um, you have to visit to grasp that. But you know, I do have a disparate collection, but it, it, it's actually, it is threaded. I mean, it, it's threaded in terms of, I have works that belong to both, both my heroes, Thomas Hope and William Beckford. But I become more recently, um, and perhaps through Thomas Hope, particularly with his passionate interest in coloured stones, um, absolutely obsessed by the use of um, the great coloured stones and marbles used mainly by the Romans, then get reused throughout the following 2,000 years. And so I've been collecting works of art from classical antiquity to the contemporary made out of these rare, beautiful, extraordinary coloured stones. The links are through the material Mm. and it somehow seems to work and it it works for me, but it sometimes seems to please other people as well, which is fine. Um, What is the last piece you've bought of late? I um, well, if you ask me on uh, next week, I'm I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm I think I'm about to buy an absolutely wonderful hardstone vase. <laughs> oh, um, that that um, I'm I'm just about to pluck up courage, I think, to 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 say yes to. But it, it's an obsessive obsessive obsession and uh, a mania which I'm absolutely delighted to have, but which I think drives a lot of other people uh, nuts. Well, I, I think that's exactly how to approach a collection. That's At some point, it has to be an obsessive search and an educated one. And as, as you've explained, with the hard stones of antiquity, a really seductive one. It is truly seductive. But I, I think you know, something I always say to collector friends, buyer friends, and, and, and certainly one, 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 one's, one's clients, that it is the things that keep you awake at night. It's the things that you actually have to stretch for both from a knowledge point of view, perhaps, and also equally from a financial point of view, that probably give you the most rewarding pleasure in the end. Philip, thank you very much for 
joining me today and talking about Masterpiece and your own collections and how to collect, to use that word. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. The ADS Theat is produced and edited by Diane Dragan and Emma Wurtzman. Music by Circus Marcus. All rights reserved by Condé Nast. To reach us about this episode or any other episodes, find us on social media at ArcDigest or email us at letters at arcdigest.com.